please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading Mark 4, 1 through 20. That's on page 489 and 490 of the Blue Bibles in the seat back pocket in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible and need one, feel free to take one. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But to the, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Thus says God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask for your help this morning. We recognize that to be able to hear and understand your word and bear the fruit of faith, we need your help. And so we ask you that you would help us this morning. Father, I thank you for the promise that your word will accomplish what you send it to accomplish. And so all of our hope, all of our confidence is in you um, and in you always accomplishing your purposes. I pray that you would do that in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning with one of the more well-known parables of Jesus. That's the parable of the sower, as we just read. 
And this is one of the few parables that we find in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this parable is unique because Jesus doesn't just tell the parable, but he actually interprets it for his disciples. And as well as interpreting the parable for his disciples, he also tells them the reason of why he teaches in parables in the first place. And so that's actually where I want to start this morning before we look at this particular parable. Let's answer the question, and maybe you've never thought about this, but why does Jesus teach in parables? Right? It seems like a lot of people don't understand what he's saying. Why does Jesus not just kind of black and white say exactly what he means? Well, some might argue that, you know, Jesus teaches in parables because that way it's more memorable, right? It's a little more entertaining. It's easier to listen to. Uh, but that is not the reason that Jesus gives for why he teaches in parables. And so we're going to start uh, in verses 10 through 12, kind of right in the middle of the passage. We're going to start with that question. So verses 10 through 12, let me read it again. It says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you, meaning his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, the first thing that we see here is that Jesus uses parables to reveal to his disciples or his sheep the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God, right? So when when Jesus was incarnated when Jesus came as 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 fully man fully god to this earth followed by his life his death his resurrection his ascension god is beginning to rule on earth in a new way right and so that's why Jesus comes preaching repent for the kingdom of god is near or the kingdom of god is among you. And so God is beginning to rule on earth in a new way. And this rule, this kingdom will not be evident to everyone. It will not be evident to everyone, but only to those who God chooses to reveal it to. And so the purpose or, or the ability to understand these parables of Jesus and apply the parables of Jesus is not an intellectual issue. It doesn't have to do with, well, are you smart enough to understand what Jesus is saying? Listen, the Pharisees were very intelligent people. Right? They were most likely some of the most intelligent people among the Jews. And so, Understanding the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom, understanding the parables is not an intellectual issue. It's a faith issue. It's a believing issue. It's a heart issue. And as we'll be able to say in a few minutes, it's, it's a soil issue. 
parables of Jesus serve as a blessing and a help to those whom God has chosen, because through them, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the kingdom is revealed. But at the same time, they serve as a judgment. They serve as a hindrance to those in unbelief because they harden even more those who are outside or those who God has not chosen. Romans 3, now these are, these are really familiar verses. They speak to our depravity outside of Christ. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, beginning in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. And so, the reality is, is that apart from Christ, every one of us is spiritually dead. Right? Ephesians 2 tells us the same thing. We are spiritually dead. We are in a state of complete unbelief. We are not seeking after God. We are not desiring God in any way. And it's only through God's sovereign election and sovereign work that any of us can hear and see and believe and turn and repent. And so Jesus taught in parables not to entertain, not to be more memorable, not to make think, not, not to make people just think a little bit harder, but Jesus taught in parables to display the sovereign election of God. The parables of Jesus confirm that our hope for salvation is not in our own wisdom, It's not in our own intellect. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own goodness. It's not in our own righteousness. It's not in our own choice. But our hope for salvation is in God's wisdom and God's strength and God's goodness and God's righteousness and God's choice. We're going to see that this morning in the parable of the sower. And so when we, when we look at this parable, we begin with a sower, right? Basically like a farmer, right? So the sower sows the seed. So we're, we're talking, when we talk about sowing, right? We're not talking about needle and thread sowing, right? Hopefully that's obvious, but someone who distributes seed. And so we have a sower who distributes the seed. The seed we're told is the word of God. And so the sower then we can say is God himself. Because God is the one who is ultimately responsible for distributing his word to the world. So the sower scatters the seed. And the seed lands, we're told, on four different types of soil. It lands along the path. Number one, it lands on rocky ground. It lands or falls among the thorns. And finally, it falls on good soil. These would have all been common types of soil to find in Israel in that day. And so this would have been uh, imagery that the people could immediately see and understand. Now, the way that I would have interpreted this parable as a teenager and even as a young adult would have gone something like this. The seed on the path represents the people that reject Jesus and just 
don't want anything to do with him. Now, the seed in the rocky soil and among the thorns represents those Christians who are just not really doing a great job right now. And they need to get their act together a little bit and they need to pick up their game a little bit. They need to try a little bit harder because they're not bearing fruit right now. So they need to improve the condition of their soil. Now, the seed on good soil, those are the good Christians, right? Those are those are the upper level, upper tier Christians. Those are the guys that are going to have the, the nice big mansions in heaven. So pull those weeds, clear those rocks, get rid of those thorns, improve your soil, and you can have a big mansion in heaven too. Please don't say amen to that. I was worried that someone would stand up and be like, Amen. If, if you're wanting to hear that type of sermon, you're not in the right church. That is an incorrect interpretation of this parable. Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us what real conversion looks like and who's responsible for it. So let's start with the seed on the path. We're told that some of the seed falls along the path and that the birds come in and they eat it, consume it, they snatch it away. Verse 15, Jesus says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, we could look at this part of the parable and say, God must be a really bad sower, right? Why in the world would he waste seed by throwing it on the path where it's going to be eaten by a bunch of birds? God must have made a mistake. And I would answer that um, with Isaiah 55, which says this. Uh, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Listen to this. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, these verses are, are so important. They're so critical because they tell us that the word of God takes root exactly where he intends it to take root. God's word always accomplishes what he purposes, always, without exception. God's word always succeeds in what he sends it to do 100% of the time. And so if God sows his seed along the path where it will not take root, he does it intentionally to display his sovereign election and to bring glory to himself. Right? This is the message of Romans chapter 9. God says, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy on, and I will harden whom I choose to harden, and I do all of it for my glory. So we have to know that, and knowing that, now we can make sense 
of Satan coming in and snatching God's word away. Right, because think about this. If God does not sovereignly elect us, sovereignly choose us and save us, then this verse would be absolutely terrifying. Right? It would suggest that God wanted to save someone, God tried to save someone, but that Satan interfered and kept that person from being saved. It would suggest that Satan has the power and the authority to frustrate the plans of God. I heard a, I heard a pastor tell a story uh, the other day. This is a pastor in a large a large church in, in, a, in a big city. And, and nearby his church, there's a charismatic church. And he, he tells this story that one day a, a prophet came through, or a, a so-called prophet, uh, came through this church, and he prophesied over one of the young leaders, one of the young pastors of this church. And he said, you are going to do incredible things for God, incredible things for the gospel. You are going to go all over the world, and you are going to win hundreds and thousands of people for Jesus. That was the prophecy. That night, that young man had an aneurysm and died. So the pastor who's telling the story, he goes to this young man's funeral because he knows a lot of people in the church. He goes to the funeral, and as, as he's interacting with some of the members of the church there, he says, hey, you know, I, I heard about this prophecy. You know, what What happened? What happened? This is painful for me to say. This, this is, this was their answer. They said, well, here's the thing. The prophecy was true. And so Satan killed him. That was their response. My answer to that is no. No. I feel like I should smack the pulpit real hard. No! No. I saw something on social media just the other day. Uh, from a church that was kind of um, talking about, you know, one of their deliverance type ministries. And it, it was talking about how, you know, even, as a believer, when you sin, you give Satan legal access to your life. And so you've got to learn how to shut those doors and, you know, not let Satan in. No! No! Listen, please hear this. Please understand this. If you are in Christ, then Satan has no power over you. He has no authority over you. He has no legal access to you. And he certainly cannot hinder any of God's plans for you. Let me just give you a few scriptures, if I may. Psalm 37, 28, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46, 11, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 33, who shall bring 
any charge against God's elect? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one, not even the devil. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Colossians 3, 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan has no power no authority over you because Christ has defeated him through his death and resurrection. And so here is the point. This is, this is theology of Satan 101. If you don't know anything else about the devil, you need to know this. Satan can do absolutely nothing without God's permission. Nothing. Read the book. I mean, Scripture testifies to this all throughout. But read the book of Job. Read the first two chapters of Job. Satan wants to afflict Job with all of these trials to get his faith to falter and fail. And God says, okay, you can do this, and you can do this, and you can do this, but you cannot do this. And so we go back to our parable. The seed is on the path. Because it serves God's purpose to put it there. And the seed is snatched away by the devil only because God gives him permission to snatch it away. You see, Satan, Satan would always snatch the word away from everyone if he could, right? He doesn't ever want God's word to succeed, but he can only do it with God's permission. And so, one of the re- we can we can say then one of the reasons one of the many reasons that you are saved and that I am saved today is because Satan did not have permission to snatch the word away from you and these are the ones verses 16 17 these are the ones sown on rocky ground the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. So we're told next of the seed that falls on or in the rocky soil. And it it springs up immediately, but because there is no root, it quickly withers away and dies. And so in the end, we're left with no fruit whatsoever. Jesus says that these are the ones who hear the word and they receive it with joy. They hear the word, they receive it with joy, but because they have no root, they fall away. So, if the person, this is, this is a big question. This is an important question. If they receive the word with joy, right? Meaning they make some sort of profession of faith, they must be saved, right? And here is where much of the evangelical world gets it wrong. And I would contend has done great damage. You see, a profession of faith does not always equal Saving faith. You say that one more time. A profession of faith does not always equal saving faith. I have seen this happen 
over and over and over. A person hears the word. You know, oftentimes it, it might be, you know, uh, an emotional setting like, like at church camp, um, like a, a concert or, you know, a great revival service. And the altar call is given and they run forward to answer the call and maybe they get baptized right there on the spot and they're so excited about Jesus. And then a few months later, they're not excited about Jesus, right? And they really have no use for Jesus and they're really not interested in Jesus and his church, right? And in the end, there's no visible change in that person's life. Well, what do we do with that, right? Because we've, we've all seen that, right? Some of us, you know, I mean, as, as, as a kid, I would say I experienced that, right? I've, I've been to those church camps and I've, you know, I've run for it and yes, I want to follow Jesus. And then eh, I'm going back to normal life now. Right? Many of us have been there. What do we do with that? What what happened? Well, what happened was a false conversion. And Jesus is describing in this parable of the sower what a false conversion looks like. He's describing here a branch that is not connected to the vine. Right? John fifteen, John fifteen five, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What Jesus is saying is that if your life does not produce fruit, now what do we mean by fruit? By fruit, we're talking about righteousness, holiness, repentance, submission to the Lordship of Christ, obedience to all of the Lord's commands in Scripture, not to mention all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus is saying, if your life does not produce fruit, then you are not my disciple. That's what he's saying. Why? Because if you have been united with Christ, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then you are a new Creation, Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians, you are a new creation, and a new creation always acts new. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you, that you don't sin anymore. But it means that Christ has given you a new nature, and a new nature will always act new and produce fruit to the glory of God. I've been at a lot of churches over the years um, that will, you know, typically always end the service with an altar call. And so, um, you know, you get someone up here to play some nice emotional music. And, the you know, the pastor gives his plea, you know, every head bowed, all every eyes closed. And then, you know, kind of plead with people for a while 
to come to Jesus as long as it takes for at least one person to raise their hand, right? Um, and some of the times, you know, I, I have been one of the people that has been tasked with going to talk to these people after they make a decision for Christ. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that people don't get saved that way. Okay, don't misunderstand me. Um, but there have been many times where I have gone and talked to people after they have, you know, responded to an altar call to follow Jesus. And I go and I talk to them about discipleship and what that looks like and being a part of the church, a part of the body of Christ and how to honor and glorify God in your life. And, you know, some people are really not that interested in that, right? They don't really want to be a part of the fellowship. They, you know, they were excited to respond to the call, but they're not interested in being part of the church, right? They're not be, they're not interested in, in being discipled and growing in holiness, um, other people that I've encountered um, uh, with some of these altar calls are, are people who we might call serial offenders when it comes to altar calls. And I, I, I don't say that jokingly. I, I say that with a heavy heart. But but I've I've encountered people over the years that seems like every six to 12 months they come back up to get saved again. And then, you know, after that, you know, they might they might be around for a little bit. But then inevitably they go back to their former way of life. They go back to their old life. You know, six months, 12 months down the road, they're back and they're raising their hand again and they're walking the aisle again. And then shortly after that, they're back to their old life again. And it's kind of a repetitive cycle. Listen, this, this type of, this type of rocky ground faith without root only lasts as long as it feels good to the person, right? It lasts as long as it feels good, but there's no union with Christ. There's no regeneration by the Holy Spirit. There's no connection with the vine. And so when trials and temptations come, this person will always fall away. It's exactly what Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. The house built on the sand, right? The house looks good. In fact, it looks just like the house built on the rock until the storm comes. And then what happens then? It's washed away and destroyed because it doesn't have a foundation. The sad truth is that human beings are very easily emotionally manipulated and the church has taken full advantage of that at times i mean i have so many vivid memories right like it and, and some of you some of you have been there done that um uh, I, I think of one time at uh at church camp in high school right and the worship team gets up and sings a bunch of lousy songs, right? And I, I didn't think so at the time. I was like, oh man, these, you know, the, the electric guitar is so awesome. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a prerequisite for good worship, right? Um, the music was so awesome. Everyone's fired up. And then the worship leader, he gets up and he says, all right, if any of you are ready to dedicate your life to Jesus. You better get down here in front of the stage right now. You need to show that you're serious about following Jesus. 
And so what happens? Well, for, for a second, nothing happens. And then there's, you know, there's always one or two brave people. And, and, and I would argue they're probably legitimate in their desire to follow Jesus. But there's always one or two people, right? They'll, they'll get up and, and start to walk forward. And what happens after that? Everyone gets up and every single person in the room runs forward and you're like, oh man, my buddy's getting up. I don't want to be the only one left sitting here. So I'm going to get up too. And I'm kind of excited because the music was really good. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this. I'm emotional. Man, yeah, I want to respond to the call. Everyone gets up. Everyone goes, right? Yes, I'm making this commitment to follow Jesus. And then, you know, weeks, months, years down the road. There's no desire to follow Jesus. I've, I've, I've seen that over and over. But we're so easily manipulated by uh, when it comes to our emotions. The church has taken advantage of this. And listen, what we need, what the church needs, is not emotionally charged music and services with impassioned altar calls and pleading from the pastor. What people need is the simple unadulterated proclamation of the gospel. And what people need, what the church needs, is to trust in the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit and not in our own means and methods to try to convince people to choose Jesus. Verse 18, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, I'll spend less time here. But again, Jesus is describing here a false conversion. And we know this. How do we know this? We know this because when it's all said and done, the person proves unfruitful. In the end, there is No genuine fruit. And when there is no fruit at all, that's an unbeliever. R.C. Sproul talks a lot about the heretical doctrine of the carnal Christian. If you're familiar with Sproul, you may have heard this. This this idea of the carnal or fleshly Christian. It's the idea that Jesus can be your savior, but not be your Lord. It's the idea that you can be in a state of regeneration without any outward change and without bearing any fruit whatsoever. R.C. Sproul says that the phrase carnal Christian is a contradiction of terms. It's an impossibility. You cannot be united with Jesus. You cannot be regenerated. You cannot be a true believer and not bear fruit in your life. And so we, we have here in the, in the, the soil among the thorns, we have someone Again, who seemingly accepts the word, at least to some degree, right? The seed is in the soil, something begins to grow, right? The person makes some type of profession of faith. I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, but here's the problem. They're still holding on to the world. They still love 
the world. They still desire the world. What does the text say? It says that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things choke the word. First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two lords. You cannot bow your knee to Jesus and to something else at the same time. And so the seed among the thorns represents those who want to associate with Christ without associating with the cross. It represents those who want to follow Jesus without denying themselves and without taking up their cross. See, if if you claim that Jesus is Lord while simultaneously giving lordship to things of the world, then Jesus is not your Lord. Jesus will not share lordship. He will not share his glory. And the faith then that you profess is false and will be choked and will prove unfruitful. But, verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. When we look at these four soils, this is the only one, the only one, that represents someone who has truly been converted, truly been saved. And here's the difference. The person with the good soil hears the word, accepts the word, and bears fruit. They hear the gospel, they make a profession of faith, and they bear the fruit of genuine faith. A believer always bears fruit. Always. But but this is important to understand. It's, it's not the bearing of fruit that makes the soil good. Okay? Let me say that one more time. It's not the bearing of fruit that makes the soil good. That's backwards. Good fruit does not produce good soil. It merely bears witness to the fact that the soil is good. Good fruit never produces good soil. It's always good soil that produces good fruit. And when churches teach that people get saved by choosing Jesus... When we, when we teach that, that people get saved by giving Jesus permission to come in to their hearts, they are, they are teaching, whether they realize it or not, that good fruit can produce good soil. They are teaching that good works can produce faith in the life of a believer. So, and this is an important question. How can a person have good soil, right? If, if, if the good soil represents those who are truly saved, who have truly been converted, who are true followers of Jesus, how does that happen? How, how can I, how can we 
have good soil. Well, that would be the same as asking, how can a person have a righteous heart, a new heart? How does that happen? The answer is not through anything that you and I can do, right? Not through anything we can do. Ezekiel 36, God says, and I will give you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, please notice that God does not say, I'm going to look for all of you who are walking in my statutes and obeying my rules, and then I'm going to give you a new heart, right? That is not what he says. He says, I will give you a new heart, and then I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to obey my rules. Here's what God is saying. It's very simple. God is saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will make the soil of your heart good. And you will bear fruit. Let me say that one more time. God is saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will make the soil of your heart good. And you will bear fruit. We said at the beginning that the purpose of the parables is to display the sovereign election of God, meaning that we are only saved because God in his goodness and mercy chose to save us. And that's exactly what we see in the parable of the sower. It is only God through the Holy Spirit who can produce in us soil or a heart that will respond to him in faith and bear fruit. Only God can do that. And when we try to manipulate people into making decisions for Jesus, instead of simply preaching the gospel, and when we tell people that all they need to be saved is to you know, walk an aisle or pray a prayer instead of bearing fruit to the glory of God, then we are making a mockery of the Holy Spirit. We are trying to take the Holy Spirit's place and we are affirming people in their false conversions and are producing churches full of carnal Christians. When I say carnal Christian, I mean unbelievers who are convinced that they are believers because the church has affirmed them in that. Paul Washer says, The doctrine of the carnal Christian has destroyed more lives and sent more people to hell than you can imagine. Some of the worst damage that the church has ever done is making unbelievers think that they are believers and affirming them in that. And, and by God's mercy, may that never, ever be the case here at Northridge. Salvation is the work of God 
to the glory of God based on God's choice. It is not the work of man. It is not to the glory of man. It is not based on the choice of man. And that is why the scriptures affirm over and over and over. And that is why we affirm as a church and we will always affirm as a church that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you would, that you would humble us. I pray that you would help us to, to truly see the truth of your word. I, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts through your Holy Spirit so that we can, we can see uh, the truth of your word. We can, we can accept it. We can believe in it. We can trust in it and we can bear fruit to the glory of God. Father, we recognize that we have no power in and of ourselves to do that or to accomplish that, that it is, it is all based on your sovereign work. It is all based on your love and your goodness and your mercy towards us, Lord. And so, Lord, may we be a people that aren't obsessed with having the right argument so we can convince people of the gospel, that aren't obsessed with making our services just right so we can, you know, get people to be saved. But Lord, may we be a people that are passionately committed to proclaiming the gospel to everyone we encounter and then trusting in the work of your spirit to save those whom you have chosen. Trusting, Lord, that your word will never return to you empty, but it will accomplish everything that you have purposed. We thank you for that. We honor you, Lord. We glorify you. You are worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take this opportunity um, to proclaim the gospel to each other by coming to the Lord's table. That's one of the things we're doing. Um, that's why we do this not alone individually, but we do this together as the body. We are proclaiming the gospel to each other. We are, we are proclaiming Christ's suffering and death on behalf of sinners to each other. And that is such a wonderful gift that we are that we are able to do that. Um, and we we say this every week. I, I hope it makes a little more sense, maybe, that this is this is not for you if you are not a believer. That's not because we're trying to be mean or trying to withhold something from you. Um, but Paul actually says in First Corinthians that that when we when we come and partake in an unworthy manner, that we're actually inviting judgment on ourselves. And we want to be as, as shepherds, under shepherds of Christ and shepherds of the church. It is, it is never our desire to affirm people that are not truly saved. And so what, what we would ask is that if you have not put all of your faith and trust in Jesus, as your Savior and your Lord, we ask that you not come and participate, but, but we want you to know that we are, we are praying for you. 
interceding for you, and we are trusting in God's ability and God's work in your heart to save you, to turn you to himself and to make you one of his own. And that's that's our prayer. And, and if, if that's you and you're here this morning, we would love to have the opportunity to talk to you and just to tell you more about the gospel and about how good and great our God is. But for those of you that have put your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, I want to invite you to come and partake of the elements here. Come and take them back to your seat. And in a moment, we're going to take them together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you again for the gift, the most precious gift of your Son, that while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sin, while we, while we still hated you, wanted nothing to do with us, you, you loved us and you died for us, Jesus. You gave your life for us. You, you were broken for us. You bled for us. You, you suffered things we could never imagine on our behalf, that by your stripes we would be healed. Thank you for taking our transgressions, our iniquities upon yourself. Thank you for becoming a curse for us. Thank you for taking all of our sin on yourself so that through you we might become the righteousness of God. We give you thanks, all thanks, all glory, all honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to read a benediction over you. And this is from John 15 verse 16 it says you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide in the name of the father in the name of the son and the name of the holy spirit amen